Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Green Knight Podcast, Episode 8. Last time I was thinking and speaking about the first principle, the first principle of Hermeticism, which is that the universe is mental, that there is an awareness that is intrinsic to the entirety, that there is a foundational looker, if you will, an observer, a consciousness that precedes what we perceive as everything. This is a difficult subject because of the stigma on one side and the dogma on the other. It can't go unnoticed that what what I'm speaking of here is God. For me, I have a scientific background, and I wasn't raised religious. In fact, I was for many years an atheist. I come at this, though, with a scientific perspective, meaning an attempt at real comprehension and not out of some belief structure. Despite me being all in on the standard model science when I was a teenager, there were all kinds of what people like to call anecdotal evidence of something more than just a kind of dead linear causality that is the foundation of a scientific perspective. The kind of scientific perspective, I mean, that you get in school. There's a lot of scientists, I was mentioning this before, out there that are studying this um, other side of reality, this side of reality that uh, has been hidden from us. And so that's the perspective that I come at this from, if you catch my meaning. I myself was aware of weird things happening as I was growing up. I never saw ghosts outright, but in my peripheral, there were shadows moving in and out at certain times. This happened a lot. Also, I had an awareness of being watched and other things. You know, the kind of things that just happen to a person or one when they're by themselves. I've just learned recently that the word person, you don't want to refer to yourself as that. We can get into that later, but not in this episode, not in the next episode, perhaps not even in this podcast. I will say right now that this podcast after episode nine, this is episode eight, will either transform or dissolve because the purpose would have been fulfilled. So getting back to what I was saying, you know, about the weirdness of being alive, the weird things that happen. Uh, My mom always told me that uh, I could read her mind. And one of my girlfriends in high school thought it was fun to hold up cards from a deck and ask me, you know, the number and the suit. A large amount of the time I could get it right, but if I started to identify with it, like to think that I was somehow uh, special, the ability would flee. I had to be clear and not take any credit. There's all the other things that people talk about, that people experience, and they're real, but they get written off as coincidence or, you know, whatever word they want to use by mainstream science. I mention these things because 
everyone has experienced them. Well, nearly everyone. Some people are just really dense, like bricks, you know, nothing gets through. But I mention it because it's valuable in order to get the mind in the space, in the space of a concept that there is more than just the physical. There has to be something more when considering things such as this. They cannot just be written off. I'm not using it as evidence, you know, these things that happened to me or the things that everyone talks about, you know, on the paranormal shows and stuff. I'm just preparing y'all's minds for the next thing I'm going to say. If you recall, last time I was talking about the observer effect and how our consciousness affects reality. Previous to that, I was talking about how the universe exhibits the properties of a hologram and a fractal. It has these properties. It's everywhere in the math. It's everywhere in nature. These patterns that were started from the initial conditions of the universe are repeated throughout at all scales. So the observer effect, this thing that happens when we look at subatomic particles, when we're not looking at them, they are incoherent. They are in a superposition of states. And when we do take a look, they collapse into what we observe as the measurement. Taking these two things into account, the holofractal nature of the universe and the fact that inside, in the smaller scale of the universe, not the smallest scale, but pretty fucking small, the human scale, the scale that makes sense to us, the scale that our senses are set up to detect, there is a pattern that occurs. The pattern is what I've just described, the observer effect, that there's this fuzziness to the world, a pure potentiality, but with constraints. When looking at subatomic particles, the particle can't be everywhere. And when we observe it, it doesn't show up across the universe or across the room. It's constrained within a system. So there is a potential there, there is a probability that the particle, if we are measuring for position, will be in a certain finite space. What I'm getting at is this pattern. This pattern that happens over and over and over when we observe reality, it becomes what it is. Previous to that, it's in a superposition with constraints. And that's not really what I'm getting at, but what I'm pushing into is that this pattern that happens on our scale relative to a much smaller scale. When we observe the quantum, this is the pattern that repeats and has been repeated, which is why quantum mechanics has turned out to be such a powerful tool in the development of all kinds of technology. If you don't understand how powerful quantum mechanics is and you think it's some kind of uh, method, you know, that hippies or the new agers try to twist um, to frame their worldview, then you haven't read books and you haven't studied anything and you're just listening to others who spout their opinions about all of this. For example, such as Neil, people like Neil deGrasse Tyson. All these smart motherfuckers can say 1,000 truths 
And if the big lie is part of their program, you have to recognize that. You can't just take this big lie because they gave you 1,000 truths. And anyway, these truths are collective truths mostly, right? They can't say all this stuff and act like it's theirs and then put in a big lie and expect you to just take it with everything else. Anyway, so I still haven't gotten to my point about this pattern, right? It's a pattern at our scale that is repeated over and over. It's the observer effect. The universe, if it is holofractal, which it is, and we see it repeating patterns from the smallest scale to the largest everywhere we look, then what about this pattern? What about how consciousness has an effect on events? You have to consider that if there is a beginning and there's a pattern that repeats itself in nature, in the universe, things have a beginning. You know, for example, like cell division, as a zygote transforms into an embryo, it exhibits specific geometric patterns that show up throughout nature in all kinds of growth scenarios. I mentioned this last time in reference to the birth of the universe. Perhaps the way the universe was born is as how we all are born. I still haven't gotten to what I'm talking about, but I hope you're with me. I hope you get what I'm about to say before I say it. The pattern is that when we observe something, it becomes an event. What I'm getting at is that if there was an origin, if there was a beginning, then it must have required an observer. And this is the first principle of Hermeticism, which is that the universe is mental, that there is an awareness that is intrinsic, that is the foundation, that is the providence of all things. To be clear here, as I was saying before, this isn't some kind of woo-woo analysis. This is actually a sincere attempt to consider things that have been swept under the rug or ignored or explained away. For example, like last time I was talking about the God particle, right? They just invented a particle so they wouldn't have to talk about how there is a field that pervades all space and all things that is present everywhere. And this is what they ascribe to the properties of the God particle, part of it. What is being considered here isn't the idea of God as some bearded white man up there looking down and judging us. That idea of God is not correct. And don't get your panties all in a bunch, right? It's just not a proper way of looking at it. The initial conditions were put in place by this awareness, but this awareness was required to look at it, to make it real. This observation trapped this consciousness inside its own creation to forever be looking, doomed to forever observe through its own creation. Think of it this way then. God is omniscient, but not omnipotent. It is ours to gain the wisdom to act potently. It's like Bob Marley said, all the glitter is not gold. Half the story has never been told. This is the first principle. There are seven principles and I'm going to go through them here. 
the first principle is that the universe is mental. The second principle is the principle of vibration, meaning that everything is frequency. The third is the principle of correspondence. Then the fourth principle is the principle of polarity. The fifth is the principle of rhythm. The sixth is the principle of cause and effect. And the seventh is the principle of gender. So if you haven't gotten onto it yet, aside from the first principle, the rest of these are properties of waves. Do you follow me? The hermetic principles are the properties of waves. Let's go through each of them. The second principle is the principle of vibration. Another word for vibration is frequency. The principle of frequency says that everything takes the form of waves. The third principle, the principle of correspondence is the notion that at any scale you will find the same patterns. I was just referencing this when speaking of the first principle, which is that the universe is mental that the universe is made of mind. Scale invariance means that at no matter what scale you look, you will find the same patterns. Everything being composed of waves suggests that there was an original emanation that repre represents the initial conditions that the universe emerged from, and these conditions were constrained in a way that their output became the input leading to the next emanating output. In this way, everything that happens is representative of what happens next and vice versa. Can you see how there can be a principle of correspondence? As above, so below, and as below, so above. This can also be seen as a property of waves. The patterns you see on the surface of a pool are repeated and contingent upon the initial conditions. The fourth principle. The principle of polarity. This one is easy to grasp, but hard to comprehend fully. This is the principle of polar opposites, meaning the principle of duality. Things such as up and down, black and white, dark and light, hot and cold, and so on. Generally, people consider opposites to be different things. But polarity is actually unity in disguise. Polarity is unity in disguise because one side cannot exist without the other. How would you know what was up if not in comparison to down? How would you be, be able to identify the light if not in reference to the dark? And how would, under, how would one understand what is good, if not in relation to what is bad? The principle of polarity, the message behind it is that opposites are defined by each other and so cannot exist independent of each other. In this way, polarity actually describes unity. A fifth principle. The fifth principle is the principle of rhythm. It starts to become clear that all of these things are describing waves. 
right? Rhythm implies the passage of time, and frequency is measured by how many wave peaks or troughs come by a point over a period of time. It is the cycles per second. That's the unit we use to measure frequency, and it's called hertz. Rhythm simply suggests that what is a prevalent condition at this moment, a peak, will surely pass, and end an opposing condition will replace it, the trough. Pretty simple, right? The sixth principle is the principle of cause and effect, but I would like to address this one last. The seventh principle is the principle of gender. So with a comprehension of the principle of polarity, we can get a gauge on the principle of gender. It might seem somewhat biocentric or an anthropomorphism of the nature of reality. But within our perception, our consciousness, what we see as feminine is represented in nature, as well as what we see as masculine. These polarities intertwine and are interdependent with each other. What human beings perceive as masculine is considered to be ordered, and what we consider to be feminine requires a more intuitive approach. The principle of cause and effect. This is the most mysterious and perhaps the most revealing. Considering the properties of waves again, right? If everything is vibration, let's talk about the principle of cause and effect from that standpoint. Perturbation of a medium causes ripples to form and emanate outward from the location of the perturbation. The question is, can an effect take place without a medium? Thinking of a cause and its resulting effect in terms of the properties of waves is helpful. This principle is often described in terms of Newton's third law, which states that for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. And this is misleading because it brings it into the, the realm of solid things, right? The first principle uses the billiard ball analogy always in school, you know, of cause and effect. The third law in, with the third law, an action is a force by which an object acts on another object. The critical requirements for this is that there is one thing acting on another. It's easy to visualize in terms of the billiard ball example, but thinking in terms of the properties of waves, we have the perturbation, which is the force acting on the medium. The substance being acted upon is the medium. What perturbation is possible without a medium to accept the input? In fact, there is no perturbation possible without a medium. The principle of cause and effect would mean nothing if there was no medium. The principle of cause and effect requires at least two things to interact with each other. And when considering you know, this with the properties of waves, right, there's the initial perturbation of the medium. Right? So that's one thing, and then the other. Can't have waves without the medium. Right? What perturbation can you have that will create a wave if it's not acting on something? 
in the human sphere, people like to equate this principle with the idea of karma. So this is where the principles of Hermeticism, like in the Kaibalion, are basically saying this is how all of these things are what we can use to um, operate a moral and ethical life, and it's true. But these principles are the natural laws of the universe. So it's important to look at cosmology or the origin of this thing we call reality in relation to this principle. To start from the human sphere, to call it karma, is to skip the whole beginning and to perhaps miss uh, the actual meaning behind this principle, and indeed all of them. The vacuum of outer space contains very little physical matter. This is why we understand that sound cannot be transmitted across the vacuum of space because there is no medium there to be disturbed or vibrated. We know obviously that sound is frequency, and the only way that we can be aware of sound is by the fact that it is vibrating the medium in which it is traveling. In most cases, for us, that's the air. What is the cause of the shaking of the molecules of the air to create the sound? The object being acted upon is the air. The force or the action is the initial perturbation causing the vibration. Can you see that when you think in terms of waves, the principle of cause and effect begins to become a different kind of thing than just balls smashing into each other. What is the object that causes the perturbation that causes the waves to emanate outwards in the air? Now you could say that it is my vocal cords vibrating and in turn imparting that vibration to the air. But what is vibrating my vocal cords? Where does the cause begin? It begins with my intention to speak and to do so. But what kind of an object is intention? Let's think about it another way. Think of a tuning fork. It must be struck in order to produce the sound. That takes the form of striking the fork on something that is hard but not rigid on the surface, such as a hockey puck. Let's think of a random striking of an object that causes a vibration that then causes the ripple effect of sound. What does that random, where does that random event begin? What causes the acorn to fall from the oak tree and land on my pro-panel roof? Roll down and fall to the ground, all creating a cascade of noises. Where does this cause begin? Does it begin with the acorn falling from the branch? Or when the branch begins to grow? Or when the tree begins to grow? Can we really identify the origin of this sound, of this effect? We can begin to see how mysterious cause and effect is. Are there really any events? And can this question actually reveal something grand? Waves are the transmission of energy and information and can be thought of as an effect. However, waves can also be a cause and have an effect. An effect can be thought of as an event. An event is something that takes place in a time and a location, right? A time and a place. This is where it gets tricky. A cause cannot be localized. 
A cause cannot be given an origin. This is because any cause in itself is an effect of a previous cause, and so on down the line into the past. But where does that cause begin? In addition, cause and effect are polar opposites. Think about this. One requires the other for its definition, for its existence. An effect cannot be without a cause. This illustrates the forward motion of time. Conversely, a cause requires an effect for its existence, which is retrocausality. This brings up the question of time, whether or not it even exists, and it brings up two other questions that are related. The question of hard determinism and of free will. If this happens, the cause, then that, the effect, will occur. If this, then that. But that cannot occur if this did not take place. We cannot determine where a cause stops and an effect begins. One must go all the way back to the original cause, whose effect was all of creation, and therefore there can be no events because there really is only one event, the origin of the universe. It's all just one event. This causes one to consider everything as preordained, or that all things are a foregone conclusion, or the universe and everything that has happened and will happen already occurred at the moment of creation. This is what is referred to as hard determinism. Hard determinism. Everything is determined, so don't even fucking try to do anything because what you're going to do already happened at the moment of creation. This kind of thing can appear to have a confounding effect on one's purpose in life. But in actuality, this is where the miracle resides. Cause and effect are unity. They cannot be sundered from each other. They are one thing, and that thing is everything. Every time we as individuals, or what we ourself, ourselves perceive as individuals, make a choice, we could say that, in effect, we're time-traveling back to the beginning of the universe and rewriting the code so that this, that which we are doing right now, these actions, have an effect. This is where some theorists bring into the picture the idea of the many worlds theory, which is a fucked up theory. We're not going to talk about it here. The inseparability of each cause and its corresponding effect is inescapable. The inability to determine where a cause ends and an effect begins suggests a hard deterministic nature to the unfolding of the universe. Because in attempting to determine the origin of the cause, we end up looking back to the original event. Because each cause is a result of a previous effect, or vice versa. I mean, I even get it confused. Because when you start to think about this, it gets all flipped around. And it turns into the Mobius strip in your head, if you follow what I'm saying. What if our awareness, though, what if our awareness, our consciousness, allows us to focus our intent and become the cause of an effect 
and write the history of the universe as if the effect was always meant to be? What if the effect we have due to our actions was preordained because we ourselves willed it? We weren't granted free will, as it is suggested in the Bible. A lot of these old writings um, come from earlier writings, you know, speaking of cause and effect. And uh, they take these lessons that are intended for us to learn in order to live our lives in a way that is proper and they twist them all around and they invert them all right i just wanted to insert that in there what we weren't granted free will so that we would choose to be good and thus enter into heaven we are the will we are the will but we have to operate by the rules. We have to operate within the bounds of nature. Natural law is defined by the principles I now speak of. If we do not operate within the rules of nature, then the consequences are that we set up a kind of time loop until we learn to do so. A kind of Groundhog Day, of which I've speak spoken of already. It's a theme to this podcast and it's a theme to the history of humanity. We've got to break the cycle. But we cannot break these laws and break the cycle. We can't break these laws. We can only break ourselves against them because we'll continually to try. We'll continue to try and we'll try and we'll try and we'll try forever until either it's arrested development or extinction. I kind of gave away the end there, but keep that in mind. These laws are explained by the seven principles of Hermeticism discussed above. So how do we break the cycle? Let's look at them again. The first is that the universe is alive. The second principle is that everything is frequency. The third principle is that of correspondence. The same patterns repeat at all scales. The biggest hurdle for a lot of you is going to be that first principle, because if you are an atheist or a materialist, then you don't believe that there is an intrinsic awareness to the universe. And if you are religious, then you think God is some big white dude with a beard in the sky that is separated from his or its own creation, her creation. I have this whole monologue about the Trinity and the number three, and it's important to the cosmology of the universe, but it could cloud the issue here, so I'm going to avoid it, maybe in a later episode. But we have the Trinity. And they recite it as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, or the Holy Spirit. But really, it's the Mother, the Father, and the Offspring. Right? That's the Trinity. So, in actuality, the Creator, or the Creators, 
the mother and the father had no choice but to become the creation. The act of creation forced them to become the creation. The second principle is that everything is frequency. Everything is waves. This is demonstrated by science, right? I mean, they use the word wavicle. They combine particle with wave and they call it a wavicle, right? And this is the whole problem with quantum mechanics, right? Is that the equation that describes superposition is called the wave equation. <laughs> So, science demonstrates that everything is frequency. And you can also look this shit up too in other ways. Um, the mathematical constants, all of them are predicted by study of frequency and it's called the quaternion symmetry. Look that up. The third principle is the principle of correspondence, which is easily observable in the properties of waves. No matter the amplitude or the scale, the same patterns arise. The fourth principle is the most important. This is where it all lies, you guys. This is the nitty gritty. This is the meat. It is the principle that allows one to operate in accordance with nature. Waves exhibit polarity. Waves have a peak and a trough, and each cannot be unless the other is. This is the principle of polarity. The three remaining principles demonstrate the method by which to use the principle of polarity to operate in alignment with nature. Polarity is the unity of opposites. One polarity cannot be without the other. The principle of cause and effect will ensure equal opposition to your position, maintaining balance. Do not fix your position to one side or the other. The principle of rhythm will ensure that any superior position will pass and become inferior. Do not choose a side. This is how we transfer from properties of waves to behavior of humanity, to behavior of individuals. Everything takes on the properties of waves. Everything follows the principles. The principle of correspondence demonstrates repetition of structure and pattern at all scales. And this is readily observable just by looking around in nature, but also by looking into the cosmos. As above, so below, and so below as above. Just within our liminal capabilities, the human being's bandwidth of perception, we witness the principle of gender in every aspect of life on Earth. Therefore, by the principle of correspondence, the polarity of gender, of male and female, is also represented at the moment of creation and throughout at all scales. We tend to think that when we think about origin, the origin of the universe, that somehow the origin is out there somewhere at a larger scale. And that may be the case, 
but at the same time, the moment of creation, the instant that frequency entered into existence. was not huge. It couldn't have taken up a large amount of volume, whatever it emanated from. What I'm getting at it is that the scale is kind of irrelevant to the balance of male and female. The polarity of masculine and feminine was present and has been present since the beginning and for all time, if indeed we can say that there is anything called time. Although we may be a, either male or female as humans, within our bodies and indeed within our minds, we contain the ele elements of both genders. This is represented by the dual hemispheres of our brains. The left side is masculine, which operates the right side of the body, right-handed people, and the right side of the brain is feminine, which operates the left side of the body. To talk about, you know, being of the left hand is silly, you know. That's the repression of one side of reality, right? When they started making everyone be right-handed. And it's probable that once the alphabet was invented, everything kind of was selected for this left brain kind of aspect, this right-handed aspect, you know? To be out of balance with respect to the principle of gender, meaning that one's operating mode is wholly one or the other, then the principle of cause and effect will ensure that one is in resistance to the other. The principle of rhythm will then ensure an oscillation between the two poles. It is clear, it should be clear, that this oscillation is not ideal. The properties of waves are immutable. The principles of the cosmic order are those derived from frequency, from vibration. These laws will play out no matter what we do. We cannot break the laws. We can only break against them. This oscillation is the cause of much suffering for individuals as well as the collective, right? So if you think about it, what is manic depressive? It is the full oscillation from manic joy to the bottom of the barrel. Are you following me? And if this imbalance in our bodies, if we operate on one side or the other, it may manifest in disease because we're skipping whole sections of our circuit right by operating out of balance so this is observable in the cyclic pattern of boom and bust on nearly every level of civilization and in our personal lives it is a cyclic return to the start over and over and over again it does not seem to me that this repetition is what we are intended to achieve on earth. Therein lies the manifestation of our perpetual Groundhog Day. We ride the wheel till we learn. The answer lies in the principle of polarity. This is where it resides, you guys. This is it. Do not choose a side.
What is it to choose a side? It is to identify what you think you are. Let us be clear. Polarity is unity disguised as dual. In effect, when you identify who you think you are, you are choosing to divide yourself because you are choosing one side of a polar relationship that cannot be divided. So you're choosing division and it can't be divided. So you're going to get the lesson. You are not who you think you are. You are not what you think. Identity is the result of thinking. And so therefore we become certain that who we are is our thoughts. Most people are left brain dominant and right-handed by identifying with cognition over intuition, with control over surrender, with our narrow bandwidth of perception over the unseen, with locality over the non-local. Thinking makes you choose a side. Remaining on the fulcrum, residing at the still point, makes action possible outside of the recurring cycle of opposing polarity. When you select one side of a polar relationship, you subject yourself to the principle of cause and effect. With every action, there is an equal op and opposite reaction. Considered with reference to the properties of waves, choosing a side or identifying with it guarantees an equal response. Identity is a perturbation of the medium, such, that, such as blowing on the surface of a hot beverage. The pressure of your breath depresses the surface momentarily only to be refilled, a cyclic rhythm. Attempting to fill your position, fix, sorry. Attempting to fix your position on a surface that is sensitive to all input only subjects you to a constant reaffirm, only forces you to a constant reaffirmation of your position, which in turn agitates the surface over and over again and again, which in turn forces you to affirm yourself. A never-ending cycle that does not progress. Are you guys hearing this? Do not affirm. Do not fix your position. Do not firm up your stance. All, right, all of you martial artists out there, Right? And fuck jujitsu, I'm not talking about that. Right? Aikido is to use your opponent's energy against them. Kung Fu, even more severe than that. So what is affirmation? It is a thought. Do not attach yourself to your thoughts. This is what is meant by riding the fulcrum. This is what is meant by the still point. This is what Zen Buddhism refers to as the middle way. The middle way is not one's response to winning or losing, as we seem to understand it in the West. And in fact, that's how I used to look at it. It's not effective in arriving at the real meaning. So this is how I used to look at it, right? Do not take loss too hard nor celebrate too much at the win. That's not it. This is the rhythmic passing of any position from superior to inferior and vice versa, right? So if you attach yourself to something, 
and you lose, then know that this too shall pass, right? That's how we look at it. But that's not how to be effective. The middle way, the operation from the still point, is to never step out on one side or the other in the first place. To step out on a pole is to attach oneself, oneself to one's thoughts. To remove oneself from the cycle is to practice non-attachment. Identification is attachment. This is how we break the cycle within ourselves. This is how we break the cycle of the collective. I want to insert here that, right, with every revelation that a person makes, the tendency, again, is to let the ego come in and then you identify with the thought. Right? So this can happen on any level. I'm using words here, right? Me writing this episode has allowed me to understand this better than I ever have, right? And it's like I said before, and it's like Crow always says, right? We're all fucking learning to get out of our diapers here, and I'm no different. But I really fucking think I undid one of the safety pins, man, when I wrote this episode. All right. What does it really mean to identify? To identify is to take credit. Credit is an artificial construct. To take credit is to claim authority, to claim authorship. Authority, authorship. To take credit is to attach oneself to a position, to a pole, one side or the other. Our society is built upon credit. Credible sources are considered to be an authority. To claim authority is to affirm one's own position and thus offering up offering up oneself to the rhythmic oppositional cycle, to the wheel, getting on the wheel, right? Making the revolution and thinking it's something. Take no credit, claim no authority. This is how we break the cycle within ourselves and heal. This is what we are intended to learn here. If we do not, our bodies pay the price. If we do not, we repeat the cycle until we learn. Simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. Right? This is the simple solution. But most of us have had multiple lives here on Earth, which means that we didn't get it. You know, and the once born, I've heard it described in two different ways. Some people think the once born were sent here uh, to help. And to me, <laughs> I always used to think of it as, oh, these are people who haven't been born in this shit yet. And so don't know, don't have any idea how to do it. You know, there's not even any um, soul memory there at all. And yeah, I know that we get our memories wiped when we're born, when we get reborn, right? This is the concept of reincarnation, you guys. And if you're not down with it, then you haven't read enough books. This is why we come back, because we didn't fucking get it. And it's really a simple fucking solution, right? Don't take credit. 
It's as simple as that, right? Do not take sides. Do not identify. Do not attach. Do not take credit. Do not claim authority. All of these are the same, and all of them enter one into the wheel. Now, in order to comprehend this, we have to address the elephant in the room. The ultimate dichotomy. Right, I think you guys should listen to Skeptico podcast because Alex does a thorough job of diving into this thing, but he doesn't get it, right? But it's important to listen to people who are trying to get it, to hear how they fucking approach it. And I love listening to him. Uh, he has great guests, even if he doesn't understand what they're telling him. The ultimate dichotomy, the polar relationship of good and evil. This is how we get sucked into the wheel, you guys. It is no different than the others. It is no different than the other polarities, than the other dualities. And it produces the same effect. But our minds, oh, we want to be good. We really, really want to be good, you guys. And that is how we get trapped. And it fucking sucks. I mean, right now, I'm getting emotional and I'm getting goosebumps. Right? How can we not choose the side of good? How can we not do that? We have to. But the ultimate good is what we're going to get out here. How can we not credit ourselves as doing the right thing by opposing evil? We as human beings began down this road in earnest after the flood, right? Um, Post-Diluvian, right? The um, Younger Dryas impact causes some real fucked up shit to happen. And um, a lot of us perished, most of us. And we could call it the fall of man, right? So previous to the flood, um, there was a golden age and a worldwide civilization. Um, part of the way that they hide the truth from us is to say that that time didn't exist and that Atlantis and Lemuria and um, the way that they built the pyramids, all that fucking shit, right, is a fantasy or a myth. But in actuality, we started down this path uh, when we started to make tools, you know, when we became the creators. This began our attempts at our own mastery over nature. This was the beginning, you could say, of our ascent into self-awareness, but also the beginning and the opening of the school, right? <laughs> So that we can ascend and not ascend into heaven, but actually be um, a race that is worthy 
to travel into space, you know. Anyway, as I explained in the last episode, in that essay that I wrote where I try to explain how um, cooperation has way more of an effect on our uh, development and evolution than competition does, like way more. And I laid it out and it seemed pretty clear if you understand what I'm saying, if you can comprehend, right, how cooperation um, provides way more incentive than competition for human beings. Right, so when we became creators, it was like, almost like how the universe is autopoetic and reiterates upon itself. That's, once we started making shit, that's what ha happened and it started and it was autopoetic and it won't stop. And that's how our technology advances and yet we, we remain on the wheel. People are motivated by value and will pursue a relative improvement. This is just how we are, right? And when we started making things, technology, when we started making technology, it created a value well, like a gravity well, a, an attractor in which people are attracted to. So if you didn't comprehend that last one, I would listen to it again, and I am going to upload the PDF of the document so you can reference it. But it is important here in this discussion of good and evil, in this portion of the polarity of good and evil, to pick up uh, humanity after the cataclysm, after the fall, after the flood. Because as I said, uh, we humans had figured it out for a while before that. Whatever happened, you know, a comet strike or wh whatnot, set us way back. And we find ourselves here now, 12,000 plus years later, uh, in a predicament. So how does evil come to be? It isn't that some of us are naturally so. Although I think a tiny portion of us are born psycho. But that's not what I'm talking about. And it isn't that looking out for number one is the only way for humans to progress. Right? This is that competition versus cooperation thing. That's not it. And that's part of the big lie that all of these smart guys out there are saying. You know, they say all this smart shit. And they know all this math and stuff. And then they say this. Right? Which is basically what uh, Darwin was saying. And we know that... Uh, I'm not going to get into it now because all you fuckers will stop listening. I'll get into it later. So maybe you can start to comprehend it. And I'm sorry if I sound condescending, but I'm frustrated, right? I'm tired of it. <laughs> tired of the bullshit. Fucking look into it, man. As I explained before, with what is natural for us, um, what is natural is that we learn, that we study. That's natural for us. And we cooperate by being of value to each other. That is our nature. So how does a evil, evil arise? How does evil arise? It is an opposite. Is it an opposition response to good, such as I was explaining just previously? Is it identification? Yes. 
It begins as that. It begins with good intentions. But once credit is taken, once terrestrial, terrestrial, once man takes authority, once terrestrial authority is established, the surface is disturbed. And it requires a continual effort to maintain that position, that authority. It's like a boat with a single leak, right? This leak sprung up right when we started making tools. Or you could say this, uh, after the flood, we were all like hiding out in caves. And uh, maybe the gods gave us fire, right? This Promethean thing, right? Some of you understand what I'm talking about. But once we had that, once we started doing it, right? That a single leak sprang up out of our boat, out of our lifeboat. And we press a finger against it. And at that moment, another leak erupts, requiring another finger. And pretty soon we've used up all our immediate options. So we start to get inventive and we develop whole systems to keep the leaks under control. Every solution creates a new problem. And after a long time, it becomes a monstrosity. Now everyone else in the lifeboat begins to come up with their own ideas, but that upsets the establishment and the rationale for doing things that harm others in order to maintain control is succumbed to. This is the simple explanation of why evil exists is that it did not begin that way. It is a compounding effect that happens over time and begins with the simple choice of claiming authority and then attempting to maintain that authority in perpetuity. This has gone on for a long time. It has gone on for so long that the harm that has been done is unfathomable. Currently, we have a situation, this situation in its most extreme state. After thousands of years of claiming authority, only to have this false kingdom be toppled over and over, a workaround has been crafted. That is that we, regular men and women who intend to be good, are tricked into compliance, fooled into claiming knowledge of what is good, hoodwinked into claiming authority and thus causing a revolution and another turn of the wheel, abandoning the true goal, which is evolution, right? Revolution just means a turn of the wheel, you guys. Right? The whole Garden of Eden thing takes on a new meaning in this light, does it not? That is where the cycle began. That is where we got on the wheel. Now we could write a whole fucking book about this shit. I could do a whole episode. I'm not going to get into it here because it really does require some uh, clever thinking. <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying. I hope you understand what I'm saying. And I don't want to use that word. I don't want you to stand under it, right? It's just that we get used to using these words that don't mean what they think they ought to do. What I require of myself is comprehension. And that's what really I'm trying to comprehend this myself. And I'm going to put it out there because I think it's important. We're on the wheel Revolution is just another turn of the wheel. Nature, the universe, 
cannot abide a monopole. They do not exist in nature. Now, some of you will reference gravity, but that you don't know what you're talking about. Now, we can talk about that in another episode, too, right? Nature cannot abide a monopole, right? A single pole. Like, for example, uh, some physicists are on a hunt for the magnetic monopole. And just, you know, stop. Stop looking. Fucking dumbasses. To take credit or to claim authority is to assert a monopolarity. It's a declaration of singular authority, the creation of a godhead or a monad, an affirmation of a fixed position. Right? Man wants to become God. That's what we're told, and that seems to be the approach here. They cannot handle that nature has an authority over them, right? They cannot handle that the rules cannot be broken. And so they work tirelessly to create a system in which they will become God. They will become the authority. Monopole does not exist in nature. Nature will oppose this to maintain balance. This is the principle of rhythm. Rhythm guarantees a transition to the inferior position, while the opposition, whatever form that may take, will become superior for a time. Okay? It's easy to see in our politics, and it's set up as a theater for that purpose. Right? We switch from red to blue, from red to blue. But they're both the same fucking thing. It's not that difficult to comprehend, but it's difficult to look away. All right? Because we're transfixed. We're in a trance. We're watching it. We're watching it happen. And we can't look away. The story of us is so fucking compelling. There is a way out of the cycle. We have to take the middle path. We have to find the fulcrum to not identify with the polarity, right? To not identify with the polarity is to know that unity is disguised as duality or a polarity. Night cannot be without day. Up is meaningless without the concept of down, male and female define each other. Our technology, our rolls of tape, our buckets of pitch that we use to stop the leaks, the cases of bailing wire, right, can only allow for two possible outcomes. If we cannot let go of our resistance to stir ourselves from the notion that we can fix the problems within society by treating the symptoms. To continue down this road is to continue to counter the irritants that arise from our own dysfunction and ignore the dysfunction. It has two outcomes, arrested development, right? This is where they put us in this digital cage, you guys, and they will chip us 
so that we come part machine. And if we comply, then the cycle continues for a really long time and we're stuck in it. So wake the fuck up because you woke people are paving the way to hell. Get it? Get it. The other outcome is self-termination, right? A lot of people think this is what should happen, that we should go extinct because we're not worthy, right? But we are. We are worthy. We're, we're here. That's why we're worthy. Everyone's valuable. Everyone's infinitely valuable. We just have to learn to step off the wheel. The mistake, and I know this is nearly impossible for most of you to accept, is to credit evil and rise up against it, right? Because this creates one's own claim on authority, which can only begin the cycle again. How many times in history have we seen one despotic government being overthrown, only to have the opposition fill the void with another flavor of despotism? Too many fucking times to count. To credit one's own resistance to evil as good is to step into the cycle, to ensure the rhythmic turning of the wheel. Right? I know. There's some fucking evil shit. There's evil bastards. And I want to pull my katana, right? I want to put on my bandolier and go Pancho Villa. I want to do it, you know? I would step on some necks for sure, right? If I get my blood up, I get it, right? But this is the polar opposition rhythmic oscillation ad infinitum. This is the Groundhog Day effect. That is why Thomas Paine is still relevant today. That is why Gore Vidal said that there is no difference between Republicans and Democrats when, in 1968, a perpetual Groundhog Day, we have chosen collectively to supersede the authority of nature and supplant it with our own. This is demonstrated by the periodic collapse of society, of which I have already spoken. Currently, there are two outcomes that are possible, of which I have already spoken. Arrested development which is transhumanism, or self-termination, which is extinction. We obviously don't want either of those outcomes, despite some of you fucking cheering for the cage. Dumb motherfuckers. I'm sorry, man. Right? I'm sorry. But something, someone has to say it. And I get you. Right? I'm like you. I want to be good. But there is a third path. There is a third way. It is to operate in accordance with nature, within the laws of nature. We have to become still. We have to shift our position to the fulcrum. This is what it really means to be the change you want to see in the world. We have to step outside the wheel. Can we do it? Yes. Yes, we can. To break the trance of our own ingenuity, the myth of our authority over nature, to look away from the mirror of our media, the blue check fucktards, 
right? These influencers to whom we give so much credit to look away from our own reflection in the pool, our technology, and notice Echo still standing there waiting for us patiently. Because although it appears that time has passed and our technology tells us so, the universe waits for us. And there is only ever the present moment. Wake up, the time is now, because this is the final turn of the wheel. Putting it in the realm of frequency and the properties of waves adds clarity and massive potential to the concept of natural law and the seven principles. Right? I think I had an epiphany when I was 15, you know, but it's taken me till now. Decades later, to come to this realization and to be able to say it, to take the images out of my mind and put them in words, right? When I was 15, I wanted to be part of the group, you know, but I was an outsider. So I just stopped fucking caring and I stopped taking showers <laughs> and I stopped wearing clothes, basically. I mean, I wore clothes, but they were like, you know, ratty, you know? I became shit dog. <laughs> Although that was the nickname for another guy, but I think we had the same realization, right? I stopped trying, I stopped asking to be included. But the fucking, it's, you know, I still had to deal with a lot of shit up until now. <laughs> and if I had become, you know, regular, regular successful, um, then I wouldn't be who I am now and I would have never come to this realization and I would be riding the wheel, right? I'm getting off the fucking wheel, you guys. And I want you to come with because we could create an amazing fucking world, right? To not choose a side is to not identify. This is the lesson of Buddhism, of Taoism, of the Zen masters of Hermeticism, to take the middle way, to remain in the still point, to ride the fulcrum, maintains balance and unity. Flow state is a buzzword these days, and it can be used to explain what I'm talking about, right? Because, all right, I'm just going to do it. This is what is achieved in flow. There is no identification, no claiming of authority, no taking of credit. If any of these are done in earnest, the flow is collapsed. Many, you, many of you have experienced this state, this flow state. Many have not. It is the state in which no opposition can touch you. It is as if the future is known and you become unstoppable. I am an athlete. Football is my game. Soccer. Come on, you guys. Soccer. It's called football, man. It's an English game. It's called football, invented by the Druids. Okay? All right, this American football thing is not football. It's something else. It's like the gridiron. It's something else completely. Football is a simulation. 
is like a microcosm of life. So I'm a footballer. And when I achieve flow is when I'm at my best. In these moments, in these times, I am more of an observer than the driver of my body. You know, I'm more of an observer than a participant. If I try to take the controls, suddenly everything becomes a hundred times more difficult and I will struggle to get back into the state. If I allow myself to surrender to the moment and let go, I can achieve what in hindsight seems impossible or at least very unlikely. The level of achievement in these peak experiences is way beyond what I could ever pull off as a result of my own will. I cannot take credit for these moments, but I seek them. This is the middle way. This is riding the falcon. The middle way, as it is referred to in the Tao, or uh, I meant to say Zen. In Zen Buddhism is where that term comes from, I think. But the Tao has it, right? mistakenly gets labeled the principle of non-action. Um, this is, in the Tao, the principle of wu-wei. The Western interpretation misses the point. The middle way allows for the most effective action because it is action not based in thought, action based in accordance with the ebb and flow of nature, avoiding opposition by not affirming and attaching to a position. The principle of wu-wei is probably better translated as the principle of not forcing and can be translated as the following. Superior virtue has no intention of being virtuous and is thus virtue. Inferior virtue cannot let go of virtuosity and thus is not virtuous. Principle of Wu Wei, not forcing. Nature doesn't virtue signal to proclaim virtue as the reason for your action is to espouse an artificial construct and enter the wheel, the cycle, the rhythmic rebalancing of all things. This episode, this podcast, is me in flow state, especially this episode. The other ones, you know, I struggled. And the gap between seven and eight, you know, you guys, it's like, this is why, right? I had to find the flow. So this is me, right? I'm a footballer. I'm an athlete. The metaphor is me receiving the ball at midfield and beating the entire defense and the goalie and just walking the ball into the net, right? But flow, it was a gift and one cannot take credit for a gift. The how we move, how we do this is unknown to me, but I can offer the what, what we should do. How it plays out, no one can say, but there definitely is a what, right? And it begins with give no credit, reject, reject, reject any claim of authority over you. Take no credit, claim no authority. Be the change by fostering this way of being. Simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. So then what? 
In episode 6 of Green Knight, I presented a method by which we can decentralize and re relocalize production, production, including our nutrition. Cooperation in conjunction with automation makes this possible. Automation, you guys, right? Robots. In, epi in episode 7 of Green Knight, the last episode, I presented the reasoning that suggests that human beings have a tendency, are hardwired to study and to learn from each other as opposed to competing with each other. Cooperation has been orders of magnitude more influential in our development than competition. Cooperation offers more incentive, more value than competition from an evolutionary standpoint. And so you hear people, you know, influences, influencers continually bashing home the competition angle, right? The survival of the fittest angle. And it's bullshit. It's a lie. It's part of the big lie that keeps us in the wheel. Okay? And perhaps this is where I'll take the podcast after the next episode. McLuhan, his notion that competition and conflict becomes dominant after the introduction of key technology is watertight. Radical innovation that alters how we perceive the world and specifically, specifically is starkly and irrefutably demonstrated by the technology of the written word. The phonetic alphabet fractured us from the world and rebuilt it in our minds as an, as, an as an assembly of separate parts. The phonetic alphabet fractured us from the world and in our minds we rebuilt it as an assembly of separate parts. Right? An assembly line where everyone's just, everyone has their everyone's a cog in the machine, right? And that there's a hierarchy and that some people are more valuable than others and that you have to pass the criteria in order to be included. Right? Well, fuck that shit. In episode four and five, I discussed the myth of Narcissus and qualify the idea that the myth of Narcissus is a warning to humanity that fixation on our own ingenuity, our own output, makes us deaf and dumb to the urgings of nature so much so that we risk everything. This myth describes the same self-affirmation, the attachment, the identification, the taking of credit, and the blindness to the authority of nature that I now speak. My description of flow state indicates that our effectiveness can be limitless if we are not limited by our thoughts. I am not suggesting that thinking not be done. I am suggesting that we not attach to our thoughts, not claim them. Let us put forth our ideas to compete with other ideas, but not link our identity to them, take credit for them, and try to own them. The concept of open source is this principle in action, the principle of Wu Wei. Open source software and hardware, no ownership of the input and the output, this is how we would begin to decentralize manufacturing and production. This is why I said that those robots are ours. They are the product of thousands of years of human cooperation. 
Those ro robots are the result of each of our specializations that make each of us unique and valuable. We, each of us, a writer, an artist, an engineer, a physicist, a chef, a farmer. No one, no one corporation, not any corporation can own what is the result of all of us. To be a master of the middle way, we can then relinquish our titles and become more. Our bodies require sustenance, and so the material problems are important. We can include everyone in the creation of what sustains us by bringing the tools back home. This is decentralizing the means of production and distributing them over the surface of our home, the earth. This is what I suggested in episode six. We can do this and evolve. Right? This is the what, and it's pretty simple, because the means of production are really fucking important, and we can't let them fucking keep it from us, and let them own it, and then give us fucking universal basic income, and expect us to be okay with that kind of existence. We don't need a revolution, though. We need an evolution. I mean, I think of that Simpsons episode where the advertisements become giants and to start destroying Springfield. And then Lisa says, just don't look, right? We create our own fucking deal, right? Just don't look at them. They don't matter. They're irrelevant. They're not how we make it through this. We got to do it. We may not get another chance for a long time, a really long time. In the next episode, I will tell the story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight to kind of tie this up because that's why I named it the Green Knight Podcast, right? Then this podcast will transform into something else. So stay tuned, y'all, and get in the flow. <laughs>